This is Deep Dish on Global Affairs, going beyond the headlines on critical global issues. I'm Brian Hansen, and today we're talking about how the United States wages war and who decides when we do. Anyone who recalls their American civics class probably remembers that the U.S. Constitution gives Congress, and only Congress, the power to declare war. But Congress has not approved the use of force since 2002 when it voted to invade Iraq. Yet since then, the U.S. military has launched missions in Pakistan, in Syria, in Yemen, and in as many as 20 African countries, including Somalia and Libya. All of this done without direct congressional approval. As my guest explains, quote, too many members of Congress are all too happy to abdicate their constitutional responsibility and allow the president to go it alone. But she has a plan to help revive Congress's war powers. My guest today is Ona Hathaway, who is professor of international law and a counselor to the dean at Yale Law School. She is also co-author of a recent book, The Internationalists, How a Radical Plan to Outlaw War Remade the World. Ona, it's so great to have you on Deep Dish. Thanks for being here. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. So, Ona, you've got this smart new essay, uh, which we'll link to on our website, entitled How to Arrive, How to Revive Congress's War Powers. But before we get into how to revive them, let's just talk about the state of play right now. As I mentioned, you know, the Constitution gives uh, power to declare war to, to Congress. Did they use that power previously uh, more actively than they are doing it now? Yeah, so... Um that's exactly right. That constitutionally, the that Congress is an essential player in making a decision about whether to wage war, um, and it's been an ongoing conversation between the Congress and the President uh, since the founding, really, about what precisely the allocation of powers is between the two. Of course, while Congress has the power to declare war, the President is the Commander in Chief, and so it was from the very beginning a set of shared powers between the two of them. Um, But over the decades um, since the founding, there's been more and more of a shift away from Congress's uh, playing a significant role in making decisions about when to use military force and greater and greater authority for the president to engage in unilateral uses of force. Um, And so it's been a slow um, and steady change over the course of of quite a significant amount of time. Um, But in the post-World War II era, um, uh, and particularly in the uh, in the last 20 to 30 years, um, we've seen a kind of acceleration of that trend and greater and greater authority going to the president to wage war unilaterally. So while it's not by any means a brand new phenomenon, um, it's definitely uh, a shift that's taken place over time and, and just recently accelerated in a significant way. And, and why is it important in your mind that Congress play a role in authorizing force? Why not just let the president do it? Well, it's a grave decision for the nation to make a decision to use military force. So putting to one side the constitutional question, um, which, of course, gives that authority to Congress, it's also the case that part of the reason that the framers gave authority to Congress was that they thought, and I think they were right about this, that it isn't the sort of decision that a president should make on his or her own, um, that it's a a decision that should be made deliberatively, that there are many reasons to want to be very cautious about launching a war, um, that it puts, of course, American lives at risk. It puts lives of those outside the United States at risk. It costs significant amounts of money. Um, it's once a commitment is made, it's very 
difficult to unmake it. Um, it can bring retaliation against the country. And so these are really significant choices that um, it's appropriate to be made carefully and deliberatively and uh, by uh, the two political branches working together to determine that, in fact, if there's going to be a military commitment, that that it's justified um, and that it's and that it's in the best interests of the nation. So I suppose the argument could be made that that's all fine and good back in the good old days. Um, uh, but in a day in today's day and age uh, where there's the need to act quickly uh, in response to conflicts and, and threats around the world that, you know, the world's changed and we don't have time for that deliberative kind of process. How do you respond to an argument like that? Well, I would say it's actually quite the opposite. I, I think they had a better case in the day that um, when Congress frequently wasn't in session and it was difficult to bring members of Congress together to deliberate on matters, um, that the president needed a little bit more leeway, um, arguably, and then um, to, to be able to make decisions. And even so, they still um, had this expectation that Congress would be involved in all the decisions about using force, except in the very unusual circumstance where the nation was directly threatened. So where the president had to respond um, in the self-defense of the nation, um, defined in a very narrow sense. Somebody's marching on Washington. He does not need to uh, bring together Congress to have the right to be able to defend the country from that attack. Um, But today, you can bring Congress together really at a moment's notice. Um, And uh, it's not the failure to be able to assemble Congress. It's that Congress is not necessarily going to agree with what the president wants to do. But that's that's not a good excuse uh, for not... uh, for not consulting Congress. Um, They can make a quick decision if they want to make a decision, just a question as to whether they're going to or not and whether they're going to vote to support what the president wants to do or not. But that's not a good excuse. Terrific. That's very helpful. And before we jump into your argument and your fix, could you just very briefly walk us through the current authorizations, the one in 2001, 2002, what they actually Uh, authorized, and then a little bit of a sense of how they have been used since then. Yeah, so um, in 2001, uh, there was an authorization for use of military force passed by Congress shortly after uh, the 9-11 attacks. Um, And uh, it authorized the use of military force um, against those who carried out the 9-11 attacks and those who harbored them. Um, it was uh, it was it was a very um, kind of assembled quickly. Um, it was uh, it was passed as I said, uh, you know, within uh, eight days, um, I believe, of the nine eleven attack. So it wasn't a long deliberative process that led to it. And the aim of that um, authorization for use of military force really was to go after Al Qaeda, which had carried out the attacks on uh, the United States. Um, and the Taliban, which had harbored them in Afghanistan and allowed them to set up terrorist camps. Um, That authorization is now in 2019 being used um, in many ways as a fairly broad counterterrorism authorization. Um, It's drifted quite far away from the actual language of the authorization, which again is really connected to the 9-11 attacks. It's now being used, for instance, as the basis for U.S. military operations against the Islamic State, sometimes referred to as ISIS, in Syria, 
even though that group did not actually exist on 9-11 and has in fact broken with Al-Qaeda, publicly broken with Al-Qaeda, and so is not um, affiliated with Al-Qaeda directly. And so what we've seen is this major drift of the meaning of that authorization through successive interpretations by by uh, the president's lawyers um, to effectively allow a wide range of uses of military force that were never contemplated by the Congress at the time that it was enacted. And then the other authorization was passed in 2002, and that authorization was really aimed at Saddam Hussein. So at the time that it was passed, Saddam Hussein was still in power, and um, there was a concern that he um, had weapons of mass destruction that he was intent on using against allies and perhaps even against the United States. And so that authorization for use of military force authorized use of force um, against Iraq um, in order to defend the United States. And so those two authorizations still remain on the books. Uh, There was a debate at one point about potentially uh, withdrawing the 2002 authorization because it didn't really seem that it was all that necessary anymore, but for various reasons that initiative uh, was dropped. And so it continues to be a source of authority that's being used for ongoing operations in Iraq. Um, And some argue that it might provide some support for at least some of our operations in Syria and perhaps a few other places that are adjacent to to Iraq. So those authorizations were the last time that Congress voted um, to authorize a use of military force. And here they are many, many years later being used to support massive use of military force around the world. And one other piece I want to put on the table before we go to your proposal, which is the War Powers Resolution, which was um, passed by Congress uh, after the Vietnam War as an attempt to reassert uh, the congressional role in um, authorizing use of force. And one of the things that you point out uh, really effectively is in in your article is the extent to which administrations of both parties have circumvented um, that mechanism. And I think, you know, one of the most striking examples is in the Obama administration and uh, 2011, when they proceed with military action, uh, significant military action in, in Libya, uh, and say basically that the War Powers Act is completely um, irrelevant, despite the fact that the U.S. was engaged in significant uh, military activity there. So um, where's the War Powers Act fit into this complex? Yeah, so the War Powers Resolution was an effort by Congress um, in 1973 to um, check the president's power to uh, unilaterally commit the United States to armed conflict. And what that resolution does is it both puts in place reporting requirements for the president. So whenever he uh, involves the United States in hostilities, um, he is supposed to, or or in situations where there's imminent hostilities, he's supposed to report to Congress, let them know that that's happened, um, and give them sufficient information so they so they're aware of the of the uh, of the commitment of U.S. forces. Um, and once that notice is made, he um, has basically 60 days. And if at the end of 60 days, Congress hasn't authorized a, the use of force, then he's supposed to withdraw. He can. Uh, potentially get 30 days for the purpose of withdrawing troops. So it's sometimes referred to as a 60-day clock or a 90-day clock. Um, But basically within 60 to 90 days, he's supposed to uh, withdraw the use of force um, unless Congress has authorized it. And uh, the incident you're referring to um, is absolutely right. In um, 2011, 
the United States made the decision to um, support uh, a NATO operation uh, in Libya. It was authorized by the UN Security Council um, for the purpose of protecting um, the people of Libya from uh, their leader, um, uh, Gaddafi, who had threatened to um, to to basically uh, uh, bring down hellfire on many of his own citizens and. Uh, that was authorized by uh, that was authorized by the UN Security Council, but it was never authorized by Congress. So Congress never voted to support the use of U.S. military forces as part of that operation. And um, the question then came up. It was noticed to Congress um, through the War Powers Resolution process, and the question was then: when sixty days, uh, when the clock got to sixty days, did the president have the requirement of withdrawing troops at that point or seeking? congressional authorization. He made the decision not to seek congressional authorization um, and to continue the operation past 60 days. And the justification that was given was that the U.S. was not, in fact, involved in hostilities. And I think a lot of people, um, uh, not just myself, but many observers think that that was not a very plausible reading of the War Powers Resolution, that hostilities clearly encompasses the kind of operations we were engaged in in Libya, which included a very significant bombing campaign, um, which ultimately led to the death of um, uh, of Gaddafi and the overthrowing of his regime. Um, and, uh, and I think most people on the ground during those operations consider those to be hostilities. Um, and so many of us think that that um, was an unfortunate um, further curtailment of the War Powers Resolution uh, because it then sets the precedent for the idea that those kinds of massive military operations could be considered to be not hostilities and therefore um, the president can do that entirely on his own. So you've painted a, a, a really vivid picture here of authorizations to use force for one reason that are expanded to cover lots of other cases. Um, uh, a war powers um, resolution uh, that is supposed to have the executive engage with Congress uh, when deciding to engage in hostilities and that these things aren't working. So what is the fix? You've got an interesting proposal for how we can get Congress back into the process of author authorizing military force. Um, what do you lay out? What's your plan? Yeah. So, um, so what I wrote up in this paper is I was trying to think what are some ways in which there are realistic um, ways that we could get Congress back in the game, um, where Congress would play a more significant role in um, authorizing force. And um, these are not meant to be sort of um, massive changes in the law. I mean, there's probably a role for much bigger kind of thinking about the framework, but I was trying to be, um, kind of think practically what are, what are reforms that one could imagine a Congress, um, uh, actually enacting and a president potentially supporting. Um, and so the first thing that I suggest is um, one of the big problems we've run into, as I mentioned with the Libya intervention, is um, what are hostilities. So the War Powers Resolution says that um, the president needs to report uh, if he's involving U.S. military forces in uh in hostilities or imminent threat of hostilities. But the problem with the War Powers Resolution is that it never defines hostilities. And so that has left the War Powers Resolution vulnerable 
to interpretation of that phrase um, in ways that um, have become increasingly implausible. And so the first fix that I suggest is, well, the obvious thing we should do is define hostilities um, and say what, in fact, it means. And if we look at the um, record of the War Powers Resolution um, uh, congressional debate, we can see that what they meant um, was for the, to use the term hostilities, what they meant to do there was actually for it to encompass more um, activities than would have been encompassed with the term armed conflict. Um, and so they use this phrase to sort of say, even if it doesn't meet the threshold for armed conflict, we still want you to report. But what's happened is it's been interpreted in the opposite way to mean that lots of things that would have met the armed conflict threshold don't count as hostilities. So my first suggestion is that um, instead of using a phrase that doesn't appear anywhere else in the law, hostilities, to attach it to an existing legal framework by um, either defining hostilities as um, situations in which the United States is involved in armed conflict um, or, uh, or even just erase hostilities and use the phrase armed conflict, which they had in fact contemplated at the time they were writing um, the resolution. And this may seem like a fairly small change, but what it does is that um, instead of using a term that um, over which there's a lot of confusion about what it means, and now there's been a lot of interpretations of the phrase so that it doesn't apply to a wide range of things that um, that we would think of as, um, as significant use of military force, um, the term armed conflict has a meaning in international law. And so it would make it much harder for a president and the president's lawyers to kind of wiggle out of the application of the War Powers Resolution. So that's the first suggestion. Okay, that's number one. Uh, what's next? Yeah, so um, the next suggestion is um, one of the reasons that we found ourselves in this um, pro- in this situation that we're in now with resolution with authorizations that were passed in 2001 and 2002 still um, giving the president authority to use military force today in 2016 is because they didn't put any um, time limit on the authority, sometimes referred to as a sunset. And so the first, the the next uh, suggestion that I have is that all future authorizations should sunset. So whenever, from now on, whenever Congress authorizes a use of military force, it should be required to include a sunset. And in fact, a stronger version of this that I suggest um, would be to not only sort of in a case-by-case basis always make sure that any new authorization includes a sunset, but um, to put in place rules, what Bruce Ackerman and I have called rules for limited war, that would require all new authorizations to state clearly whether they contemplate an open-ended conflict or a limited war. And in the absence of a clear statement, it would presume limited war, for instance, a two-year sunset. So, and by that, that would mean that the president would have authority for two years to use armed force, but that without further authorization, presumably couldn't continue. Is that how that works? He or she? Exactly. Exactly. So the idea would be that if the president, if Congress authorizes the use of force, the default would be that it would 
it would end, that authorization would end within two years. And that doesn't mean that the operation necessarily has to end. It just means that the president has to go back to Congress and say, hey, I need more time. Would you authorize this for another two years? And then Congress can make a decision about whether to do that. And what I like about the two-year period, although there's nothing in this that necessarily requires it has to be two years, you could do the same thing with five years or eight years or 10 years. Um, the nice thing about two years is that um, in the Constitution, um, there's a provision that provides that you should only um, authorize, provide appropriations for use of military force for two years. And part of the reason for that in the original vision of the Constitution was that the, the framers wanted every um, Congress to have uh, to have an opportunity to make a decision about whether to continue in a military operation if it was ongoing. And of course, uh, members of Congress have a two-year term. So if you match it to a two-year term, that means that every Congress is going to have an opportunity to make a decision. Every member of Congress is going to have an opportunity to make a decision about whether to continue an ongoing military operation. Um, and and that really does then allow people um, to uh, hold their representatives responsible because the, when the person comes up for a re-election, you're going to know what their stand is on it. They can't pretend that they don't have a position because they will have had to take a vote. So that's the advantage of a two-year sunset. But frankly, all that I care about really is that there be some sunset. I think in 2001, if we had said, you know, let's put a 10-year sunset, sunset on this, everybody would have thought that that was crazy because 10 years is so long. But that would have triggered a decision about whether to continue the operations um, that are con being conducted under the 2001 AOMF in 2011. And here we are in 2019, and we haven't had that conversation. So that's it's supposed to be democracy forcing, forcing a conversation, forcing um, a deliberation, rather than just sort of sitting there and letting existing legal authorities continue to exist. And you've got a third proposal that fits into this as well? Yeah. So I also um, argue that um, one thing that we should do is reaffirm that military force in contravention of international law is prohibited. So um, legally, um, the, the United States is bound by both the United Nations Charter and by the Geneva Conventions, um, which govern the conduct of uh, war, of, of armed conflict. But, um, but there has been um, some ambiguity among some, uh, or uncertainty among some, about whether those laws really do bind the United States. Um, and, uh, and I think it's worth reaffirming um, in writing that, in fact, uh, use of military force in contravention of international law is not allowed, both in contravention of the United Nations Charter, which prohibits use of force, um, or threats of use of force against another sovereign nation, uh, except in very limited circumstances. That is where that nation consents to it, um, where the Security Council has authorized it, or where um, that uh, nation poses a direct um, and immediate threat um, to us. Um, and reaffirming that I think would be important because it would refocus some of the conversation to our international legal obligations, um, which has kind of fallen by the wayside in this conversation. Um, we tend to focus a lot on the domestic authorities and not remember, uh, not always remember that there are also international legal authorities that are constraining um, and that we should be attentive to. And I think reaffirming that would also have the effect of, of stating to the world that we are committed to these international legal 
obligations that we also intend to hold them to those international legal obligations and and we'll hold ourselves to them as well. So that's a, a really interesting proposal. And as you talked about at the beginning, you were intentionally looking for things that could be done that were achievable, that were practical. Um, I'm interested in, in uh, whether or not anyone from the political process has picked up some or all of these ideas and whether or not they're, they're being championed. As, as you've also pointed out, Congress has often been more than happy to um, let the president stand alone uh, in not having to be accountable for these decisions, and this would increase their accountability. Are there people inside the system who are trying to carry this forward? Well, what's interesting to me is um, there's a new set of debates around these questions that I think didn't exist even three years ago. Um, People are suddenly awake to the fact that um, things are very much out of whack. And so there are more efforts. Mine is one of, of several to try and think through the question of how should we reform war powers? How do we bring Congress back into the equation? Um, how do we um, create a situation where the president appropriately has the authority to be commander-in-chief, but that doesn't entail unlimited authority to wage war on their own uh, without any kind of accountability or constraint from Congress? And um, many of the um, Democrats running for office have expressed a willingness to um, to be to to embrace some of these constraints, not these specifically, but have spoken about questions of you know how do we bring an end to the endless war and um, concerns about the growth of the unilateral presidential powers and but but what is interesting to me is thus far they haven't been pressed to come forward with very specific plans about what they intend to do and I do hope that as the conversation unfolds over the coming months that um, that those who are running are going to be pushed to be more specific about what kinds of reforms they would embrace. Because one problem that you run into frequently is that people running for office um, run for office as anti-war presidents, or at least presidents who want to to pull back on war. Barack Obama certainly ran um, on the expectation that he was going to, um, you know, that he wasn't going to engage in military adventures. Even Donald Trump um, ran as someone who um, didn't embrace uh, kind of expansion of U.S. military presence abroad. And then when they come into office, uh, the pressures of the presidency often cause them to kind of put that to one side. So I've already talked about some of the ways in which um, Barack Obama, um, despite uh, having a strong position against uh, unilateral use of military force by the president, nonetheless continued to interpret the 2001 AUMF to allow massive counterterrorism operations abroad, including to Syria against ISIS, which many think of as as not particularly, um, certainly not tied to the text of the 2001 AUMF. Um, and, uh, and so he governed as a president who was willing to kind of press the limits of that authority. And it's again, the, the Libya intervention. So I think we need to be thinking about not just how do we get people to campaign on good war powers policy, but how do we get them to govern on good war powers policy? And how do we encourage them to embrace um, some of these limits and not just say, yeah, yeah, you know, I won't launch us on a bunch of wars, but to say, I'm so committed to this that I'm committed to signing a law if it's sent to me 
that provides for some of these constraints. And since this is, as you point out, um, part of the debates in the electoral process, one of the reasons we wanted to have you on was to talk about this issue and to help our listeners think about uh, alternatives and uh, what could be achieved with them. So Ona Hathaway, Professor of International Law and Counselor to the Dean at Yale Law School, thanks so much for being on Deep Dish. Thank you so much for having me. It was a real pleasure. And thank you for tuning into this episode of Deep Dish. If you like the show, do me a favor and tap the subscribe button on your podcast app. You can find our show under Deep Dish on Global Affairs wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you think you know someone who would enjoy today's episode, please take a moment, tap the share button, and send it to them as well. I'd like to invite you to join our Facebook group, Deep Dish on Global Affairs, where you can ask our guests follow-up questions about anything you heard today or submit questions for upcoming guests and episodes. That's Deep Dish on Global Affairs on Facebook. As a reminder, the opinions you heard today belong to the people who expressed them and not the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. Our audio engineer for this episode is Andy Zarnecki. I'm Brian Hansen, and we'll be back soon with another slice of Deep Dish.